Lord Jesus Christ, they're the words with which uh, Paul ends this letter. But we pray that as we attend to his word and yours this morning, we may find that your own grace has indeed been with our spirits. Amen. Well, this final section in Philippians puts before us uh, a choice. It is, I think, potentially a life-changing choice, certainly for individuals, perhaps for whole congregations, and if only it could be got out there for a whole nation. And this sermon at the end of Philippians is obviously not just about this section, but it uh, tries to pick up some central themes of the letter, all pointing to that life-changing choice. Do please turn to it. It's on page 1181 in the Church Bibles. Paul is sitting in his prison in Rome, chained to a soldier and dictating this letter. And we will get to that choice. But there is one thing that you may have noticed as we listened to Roger then. One odd feature of this section that we need to pay attention to first, kind of clear out the way. First, why does Paul seem so grudging? The background is fairly simple. The Philippians, uh, the, the church that is in Philippi, in part of Greece, have sent Paul's friend to him in Rome. His friend is called Epaphroditus. Um, I have to say that has never sounded to me like the kind of name that his mother would shout from the bottom of the stairs when she wanted him to come you know, to tea. Um, so let's call him Epi for the moment. So the Philippians have sent Paul's friend Epi to him in Rome, and Epi's brought with him a financial gift from them. For some reason, we don't know what it was, they weren't able to send help for a good while. We know that from chapter 2. But now they have been able. But Paul doesn't seem very grateful. Look at verse 10. At last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you had been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Well, that sounds to me like... Well, you sent me a gift, but I don't want you to think I needed it. Or again, verse 16. You sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift. It may be that you've uh, not noticed that tone as we heard Roger reading. But it is worth dealing because some of you will have heard it, and at some point most of us encounter that end of Philippians and wonder what's going on. And we have to understand the context, which is really about how friendship worked in the ancient world. Friendship was not about running around, uh, playing good games, caring, trusting, and all the rest of it. Those were very important, no doubt. But the heart of, uh, of friendship was giving and receiving, at least adult friendship. 
It was like a sort of stately dance. I give, you receive. You give, I receive. And some of us come from cultures in other parts of the world where giving and receiving are very different from the way they are here. And what Paul is doing in these verses is trying to make clear to the Philippians precisely that it is not just those old, uh, I give, you receive, you give, I receive, uh, ideas of friendship going on. When someone was in need, you gave to meet the need. And so the little bit that starts in verse 10 actually ends in verse 14. It wasn't about... Uh, meeting my need. Actually, what Paul wants to say is, it was really good of you to share my troubles. You did something beautiful, genuinely loving, that is worth so much more to me than what it meant in terms simply of meeting needs. Or again, that other example, verse 15, begins, moreover, Uh, But it ends in verses 18 and 19. The gift that you sent doesn't merely even out the balance in this stately dance of giving and receiving between us. On the contrary, we have to think of how the balance stands with God. I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more, I'm amply supplied. Now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And those gifts that you sent will call forth not just a kind of another giving from me in the stately dance, but rather a giving from God out of the store of his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Verse 19. So when you do... Uh, encounter Philippians and those slightly odd phrases. Remember that Paul is trying to break out of the expectations of his world, to say it's not just about meeting needs, it's not just about evening everything out. This is something beautiful you've done, and I want you to know it. It goes beyond need. But now, let's move towards this choice When were you last joyful? Was it a sea of snowdrops in a wood? Laughter of a child? The view from a mountain? A good night's dancing in a club? Lovers seen holding hands? Great ski run? These are for us moments. An intense glory in a moment. And how different that emotion is from the emotion that we seem to hereof in this passage. I would bet half of us could quote part of verse 12. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every 
situation. Contentment. Whatever the answer was to the question about joy, when were you last content? What a different world that conjures up. A mug of Horlicks before you go to bed, a good book, a touch that supports. When your household budgets balance, I suspect many of us can't just quote verse 12. We believe we know what verse 12 is to live in. We are content, or we aim to be. And it is, of course, both a modern and an ancient virtue. Paul could use the language of contentment. I said earlier, he's breaking out of expectations. And that's exactly what he wants to do here. He is using the language of contentment. Because he wrote in a time when there was this popular philosophy called Stoicism. It encouraged contentment. It encouraged you not to bother too much about pain or pleasure, but rather to ignore them both. Stoicism is right back there in the ancient period with Paul. But it gets rediscovered. It's rediscovered in the 16th century. It's rediscovered in the 19th century, going into the 20th century. Rudyard Kipling, the poet, can say, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors both the same. It is pure stoicism. It's the very essence for Kipling of being a real man. Never mind triumph or disaster, never mind pain or pleasure, you just got to go keep going. It is the British stiff upper lip. I thought, well, how can I illustrate the British stiff upper lip? And then I found something. In 1940, a bomb hit the golf course in Richmond, in Surrey. And one of the members made, as a joke, this collection of new rules for how to play golf. How to play golf with a stiff upper lip, playing on like a stoic while the bombs fell. I'll read one or two of those for those who may not see so well. Players are asked to collect bomb and shrapnel splinters to save these causing damage to the mowing machines. A player whose stroke is affected by the simultaneous explosion of a bomb may play another ball from the same place. (laughs) Penalty, one stroke. And I spend some time on this idea of contentment because it was important then and it's important now. Thank you, Andy. Better lose that. We British must seem very odd to those of you who come from more colourful cultures. Perhaps you'll stay for tea and coffee and someone will say, you'll overhear someone saying, how are you? And the answers will come, fair to middling, mustn't grumble, as well as can be expected. When my father had just had a taste of some utterly wonderful food or some glorious experience. We knew exactly how he felt. He would tell us it, not too bad. (laughs) 
we touched on it a little in our staff meeting this week. We wondered why the courses we offer Alpha and Christianity Explored and Now Alive seem not to be attended by very many who have been invited. Is it possible that we are simply very English? Not so much alive, and certainly not dead, just not too bad. And that thought begins to draw us to the other side of the choice that Paul presents us with. One theologian in the last century put it like this, to be saved does not mean to be a little encouraged, a little relieved. It means to be pulled out like a log from a burning fire. You see, although verse 12 is famous, it's not enough. Oddly, actually, probably many of us know verse 13 as well. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. But did we know that the two belong together? See, Paul in verse 13 does not mean, I can do extraordinary and astonishing things through him who gives me strength. Paul couldn't right at that moment, for example, get out of his chains. But what he means is that everything he does, he does because of the strength he finds in Christ. Let me give a little plug to our own Facebook page. Have a look, if you uh, have the option, at a little um, clip that went up uh, yesterday saying, Good morning, church, about doing everything for the glory of God. Uh, How is that possible? Uh, In this way, as Paul would know because everything is done from the strength we find in Christ. What, again, Paul is doing is breaking out of this expectation, this stoic world view. He's twisting its tail. He's saying, Kipling, you are wrong. You put it delightfully. You put it powerfully. But you are wrong. And so is that long run of heroes in the 19th and 20th centuries who come after You know the kind, the cowboy, the spy, the man, and it normally is a man, who is entirely self-sufficient. And our problem is that we learn verse 12, which could sound stoic, without learning that verse 13 belongs with it. I am not self-sufficient, but rather, verse 13, I am Christ-sufficient. Food and hunger matter not to me, not because I am above such things, not because I can treat those two imposters just the same, but because Christ matters everything to me. Paul knows that by itself contentment is not enough. Verse 12 is familiar to us, but there's a part of verse 13 that ought to be a great deal more familiar to us. It's a shame that verse 13 in our translations conceals a a key word. It's not through him. I can do everything through him. It's actually in him. It doesn't read as well. That's why they changed it, no doubt. But it puts it in the same frame as a phrase that comes up again and again in Philippians. In him. In Christ. And it's scattered through Philippians so that in any one chapter, as we've had our times together... We may not notice it, but if you look at the whole piece, and it's quite a small piece, it is deeply embedded. It comes 12 times. What Paul feels, he feels in Christ. 
And he can only be contented in this world because Christ is the one before whom every knee in this world and out of it will bow. What he is not is content with this world. He is offering us a critique of a certain kind of ancient Stoic virtue, and it's worth dealing with because it is so deeply embedded in the British mentality. He knows that it is impossible to be fair to middling in Christ. It is impossible to be, as well as can be expected, in Christ. Impossible to be not too bad in Christ. I make no apology for harping on about it because it is deeply rooted in our culture. Contentment may be a British, but it is not a Christian virtue. Then what is a Christian virtue? Well, again, this passage plays its part in telling us. This passage speaks of strength and glory and fragrance and riches, but there's another word. It comes up a little here, but liberally sprinkled again through the whole of the letter 11 times. Not so much in each chapter, but together it's astonishing. There is Paul with the rats running around, and again and again he writes of joy. Could we have the other slide, please, Andrew? In one bottle of joy by Jean Patou, which was, uh, came out in 1929 at the very height of the Great Depression, there are the uh, essences of 10,000 jasmine flowers and 330 roses. And a lot of women have just looked at a lot of men and gone, But Paul holds joy in his heart in the midst of a stinking dungeon. And his joy comes always from two things. Knowing Jesus with them, he rejoices in their growth to be like Jesus, taking Jesus' attitude, developing Jesus' character, adopting Jesus' Sacrifice of himself. I rejoice. My brothers rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Your joy in Christ. He delights to know Jesus with them. And then secondly, he delights to know them in Jesus. Their partnership with him. His delight in them. Their love for him and for Epi. Welcome Epaphroditus with great joy, you whom I love and long for. And Diana touched on that last week. Knowing Jesus with them, knowing them in Jesus, these are what give him joy again and again. Do I need to say much else before we realize, gosh, that's not how I feel? Because there, I think, is the deep challenge of Philippians, the life-changing choice I spoke of. 
will we settle for British contentment? We might well have reason to. After all, Paul says he knows how to be content in want and in plenty. The ancient warning to Israel in Deuteronomy was not to forget God when they moved into a plentiful land. Many of us have enough, and our enough would be plenty for others. But may I urge upon you, and upon me, because I suffer from a stiff upper lip as much as any, let's give up being Britishly, stoically content for the sake of the joy that Paul knew in Christ. Some of us, even those who may be here today, face life-limiting conditions. It's not enough for me to say to you, be content. Some face the loss of job or family. It's not enough for me to say to you, be content. Some of us from this church face deportation from this country and possible death. It's not enough for you to be content. Others of us have the same circumstances today as we had last Sunday and the Sunday before that and the Sunday before that. Not much has changed. And there too, Paul would tell us, it's not enough to be content, to be self-sufficient. It is not enough to wander through a cemetery blindly, saying, well, I suppose it's not too bad. I'm as well as can be expected because we are those who have been brought out of our graves, pulled from the burning fire. We are those who have been given the gift of life. We have been given the gift of joy in each other and in Jesus Christ our Lord. The thrill of a different dance. So let me close by drawing your attention to the close of the letter and to something that I'm sure made Paul's own lips smile as he wrote it. Look at verse 22. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. I guess he wrote it because it was true. Those from Caesar's household did indeed send greetings. But what was the watchword of the times in which they lived? Well, they knew the answer in Rome. Caesar is Lord. And we learned in chapter 1 that Paul, tied to his Roman guards on rotated duty, had conveyed to the palace guard the news that, no, Jesus is Lord. From the glory of Caesar's palace, via the grubbiness of Caesar's prison, The Philippians, far away, learn of the affectionate greetings of those who used to think that Caesar was Lord, but now no different. Paul in prison is doing his job. Jesus brings truth out of idolatry in the very heart and center of idolatry. He brings life out of death, joy out of classical contentment. He writes possibly the most famous bit of this letter. 
He writes in chapter 1 and verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I suspect we know enough of the gospel to know that dying is gain. But in our heart of hearts, do we ache to know that joy that comes from really living, which is Christ? Christ's people in partnership, Christ himself as the one giving up, worth giving everything up for. That is joy and really living. And so as we come to the end of Philippians, how shall we leave it? It does seem to me that with that note, those notes of being in Christ and joyful, rejoicing in him, and doing so when we may find ourselves in prison or in some other ghastly situation, many of which you are living through, I know. We might usefully pray for the gift of joy and not merely contentment. Week by week, we offer prayer ministry at the uh, chapel next door on the right there. And we will do so this week. Thank you for those who volunteered at short notice to do that. But it seems to me that though it would be wonderful, not many of us will take our courage in our hands and walk over there and say, I don't need prayer for my, uh, I know, broken leg or for my cousin's bereavement. I could just do with more joy. And so what I suggest is I'm going to ask you simply to stand if you recognize in these words of St. Paul a calling of God on your life. Of course, we could all do with more joy at any given moment, but it is perhaps a chance to say contentment is not enough. Being English and not too bad is not enough. It's not just enough to avoid death. I want to be really alive. And then we'll pray a stunningly appropriate hymn that Jonathan has chosen. So, if you would like me to pray for you, for the gift of joy, and as you are able, please stand. Lord God, behold your people. We confess before you that we have often known what it is to be content in that rather thin and British way. we can scarcely believe 
that a man can write from prison of joy and gladness, of glory and of grace. But there is something of Paul that we want for our own spirit. We recognize how much of Paul's joy came from a love that he shared with a congregation far away. Make us glad, as we have perhaps never been, to share the life of Christ with the people beside us now and those we know to be absent. And grant to us the gift of rejoicing in Christ and rejoicing in one another. Grant to us the gift of joy that is the gift of your Holy Spirit. For we ask it because we want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with our spirit now next Sunday and every day. Amen.